We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Sock Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Welcome to another Sad Talk Radio. I'm Joe Quinn, and my co-hosts this week are Pierre Lasquedron and Neil. Hello. Hey, everyone. Uh, this week, we are talking about the general state of the world and the particular uh, topics that have come to our attention, uh, not just this week, but over the past few weeks, I suppose, and that we think really need to be talked about because many of them are outrageous. Um, for various different reasons. Um, I suppose <clears throat> they're outrageous and no one has quite expressed the outrage we yeah. feel about them, so we're going to do it ourselves. Yeah, it's all a bit mute, muted, you know. Um, obviously, you can't expect much from the mainstream media, but um, uh, even uh, alternative news websites and bloggers and stuff don't really seem to be getting or certainly are not expressing just how crazy things are on the planet right now uh, in all spheres uh, across the board really um, and I suppose maybe that's understandable because it is across the board and there are so many different topics so many different areas of life on this planet that are screwed up it can be maybe overwhelming for some people to really just take it all in and try and make sense of it because um, a lot of it doesn't make any sense what was the most outrageous event you witnessed over the last uh, few days. The thing that we really got you. Wow. Well, it's it's hard to uh, it's hard to to pick one, and it's because all of it is all of it stems from um, the same backless insanity, if that's a, a proper description, uh, of the powers that be or the authorities and, and the way that they are handling things and the things that they say and what they have, what they are doing and what they have done to kind of they, they've sown the seeds and they're reaping a whirlwind now and um, and they're trying to pretend it doesn't exist basically so it's it's across the board i mean and i wanted to to add them to the point you mentioned that sow the seed and they're reaping so the consequence of the past there might be uh, some factors linked to the future also, if we take into account this uh, cosmic information field hypothesis that transcends time, uh, one could wonder if the PTBs, the psychopath in power, don't, sen- don't sense, at least uncon- on an unconscious level, what is coming. And uh, as a reaction, unconscious reaction, they're exerting even more power, even more control, because they have this fear of losing and the sense they will lose it. Yeah, maybe, maybe that sounds about right, and it's producing bizarre results. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's that, and <clears throat> but it, it has to be. Uh, I mean, it seems to me that it has to be unconscious, like you said, because sure. uh, they just feel something. Uh, something's going on. Something's slipping away. The way an animal feels instinctively. Yeah. yeah, the wind is blown slightly differently. It's funny because it's a human cosmic connection. I mean, funny. 
It's ironic in the sense that if the human cosmic connection hypothesis is valid, it means by exerting even more power, even more injustice, they increase the cosmic reaction that they sense that trigger them to exert more control. So you have a feedback loop here uh, that is detrimental for for everybody, uh, <coughs> but especially the ordinary people of this world, because they're the ones who are subjected to the to these ridiculous policies and the, the continuing violence and um, attempts to control that generally result in some form of violence against the ordinary ordinary people of this world. If it's if it's not direct violence against human bodies, it's uh, violence against uh, basic human rights. Um, I mean, here I'm thinking of uh, the most recent um, kind of scare uh, about uh, bombs on planes and stuff. Um, that you know, probably a lot of people are kind of immune to it or or um, kind of I don't know that they've been uh, they've been subjected to it so often in the past over the past 10 or 12 years since 9-11 that they probably see it's just more of the same and they just kind of uh, keep their heads down and put up with it but it's uh, it's the terror threat on planes you know for the just come for the just in time for the summer holiday season people traveling on planes a lot more a lot more frequently than, than usual, and um, they've instituted, uh, in, particularly in the UK and in the US, for transatlantic flights uh, going between, for people going between these two extra special countries in the world, uh, right there at the top of the pyramid. Special relationships. Psychopathic assholes. Uh, they're up there at the top, um, and they're the ones who have instituted these, uh, these strictly controlled at airports where you get an extra special. Uh, aggressive group from your friendly TSA agent or whatever he's called in uh, immigration in, in, in the UK. <clears throat> uh, and it's based on the old uh, kind of, you know, scary terror tactic of, of hiding bombs uh, on their persons and in, in, in discreet places uh, and threatening to blow them up over the Atlantic. I mean, it's, it's such a psychological kind of manipulation and, and fear-based ploy to, to do this, particularly on airplanes, you know, um, it, it, because it's, it's a place where people feel extremely vulnerable. And uh, True. At the same time, if you're a terrorist, and we see all those security measured, measures applied in airports, you're wondering, if, you're, if you have a, a little bit of intelligence and you're a terrorist, but you're going to blow a bomb in a place that is less controlled, yeah. in a shopping mall, in a, in a school, in a any public place mm-hmm. with less uh, regulation. So one could wonder, uh, yeah, how the narrative is probably the terrorists are so stupid that they managed to engineer all those uh, devices, those bombs, to go through all the security checks. They're very intelligent in a sense, but they're very stupid because they go through the, they put their bombs in the most secure places, airplanes. So there's a kind of paradox here. Mm. Yeah, it's, um, the, the, the most recent one that we're talking about is uh, it's tied to this whole uh, ISIS situation in Iraq where this uh, supposed group of jihadi nutcases have taken over Iraq and um, there's one of them, uh, one terror mastermind, an evil genius as he's, as he's actually been described by um, uh, US intelligence. They actually use that word evil genius. I mean, it's straight out of a, it's straight out of a Hollywood movie. You know, that term evil genius is, yeah. hits people uh, <laughs> where they understand it. Uh, 
uh, to really to you know where they've been infected with it via via Hollywood movies, you know, and, and they yeah. recognize that evil genius. Oh yeah, I've seen that on a movie. He's an evil genius. He's the other like term they keep using is the mastermind. Yeah, the terror mastermind. The uh, brains behind it all. So this ISIS guy, he's a chemist. He's a what is he called? He's, he's uh, it doesn't matter what his name is really because he's kind of insignificant. It kind of does because it ties in with the theme. Asiri. Alasiri, yeah. Uh, so he's a chemist, surgeon, terror chemist, terrorist chemist, surgeon, mastermind, genius mastermind. Uh, and supposedly he's been, uh, he has associations with um, this ISIS group in Iraq and he's been, you know, supposedly maybe possibly, according to intelligence agencies, uh, training uh, different people uh, to um, to surgically implant, uh, either surgically implant or forcefully implant uh, bombs on their person so they can get through airport scanners and blow up the plane. Now, there's no evidence for it whatsoever, but they put it out there all over the place and then institute these um, stricter controls at airports on the basis of no evidence whatsoever, just basically scaremongering, hearsay. Uh, but people obviously affect, are affected directly by it because, you know, people in UK airports are waiting for two hours to get through it and getting groped uh, repeatedly on their way to, to the US or coming from the US to Europe. I have a question at this point. If I understood correctly, the scanners have some color code systems and uh, for each different substance, for each different um, chemical, there is a specific color on the screen and it's full body scanners. So how come this guy managed to design bombing device that would not appear on full body scanners. Well, he How hasn't. Does, he hasn't. It's all no, complete there's BS. No, there's no evidence for it. It's all it, conjecture. And it's it's a simple. It, it was an, an intelligence suggestion from the U.S. to the U.K. Hmm. Literally two lines. That's all got reported in, in the U, in the U.K. media. A tough new security regime was imposed on passengers after American intelligence suggested that Al Qaeda was plotting to use. Western fanatics to bring down a U.S. plane. That's it. That's the extent of it. And then the media filled in the gaps because this guy has, in the past, been associated with surgically implanted bombs. Alasiri. Really? Uh, well, no. It's all. It's all. Again, it's all hearsay. It's all made up. There, there is no evidence for it. Um, they claim they make lots of claims uh, about him uh, that he was associated with the famous uh, underwear bomber. Uh, or that he was, that was his, one of his projects where he uh, got this guy, this young Nigerian guy, uh, Abdul Matab, Matalab, to uh, get on a plane from Amsterdam to, I think it was New Jersey or somewhere in the US <coughs> in 2011, I think. And uh, this guy supposedly tried to detonate the, the explosive in his underpants with a match or something, and it just kind of, all it did was kind of fizzle a little bit and set his pants on fire. Uh, and this was big, big news at the time. And this supposedly is this chemist, surgeon, Al Qaeda, ISIS mastermind who uh, carried this operation out. And of course, there's lots of serious questions about that, uh, about that event in the sense that um, there were reports of uh, that he was escorted to uh, the airplane without a passport by a well-dressed man in a suit and put on the plane with no passport and apparently no ticket either. So um, somehow Al Qaeda were able to get past uh, Schiphol, Schiphol Airport uh, security 
and get this guy on the plane. And then he, uh, half, you know, I think not not far from the destination, he decided to uh, set his underpants on fire. And uh, one of the guys, uh, a Dutch guy who was in the seat, uh, a seat near him, uh, watched him uh, do this. And he looked around. He, he smelled smoke, and he looked around, and he saw this guy just sitting there with his uh, pants on fire. And uh, <clears throat> the guy, he said, the the, the un- <laughs> purported underwear bomber uh, was just sitting there with his blank stare, looking into nothing into space while his pants were on fire. Um, and Which suggests, uh, well, suggests that there was something seriously wrong with the guy, apart from his ill-fated attempt, his feckless attempt to, to, to bomb the plane. That was never going to work because of the actual way that it was constructed. It was impossible for it to actually explode. The only thing it was going to do was set his pants on fire uh, with uh, quite a lot of effort, even even at that. Um, he uh, He apparently was in some serious dissociated state in, in the sense that, you know, I mean, you could argue mind programming or something like that. But anyway, this chemist guy who's now uh, <clears throat> bringing fear back to Western uh, civilians, Western European and American civilians through a renewed um, bomb threat has gone a little bit further, <clears throat> no pun intended in, in the sense that, or pun intended in the sense that the new threat is not just that the bomb would be in the underpants, but the bomb would be uh, inserted into the terrorist rectum, and uh, this way, and this way, they would be able to pass security. But it's actually interesting because they, again, they cite uh, this terrorist chemist surgeon. Uh, you know, he's probably got lots of other qualifications as well. He's probably. Uh, In fairness to the British media, one of the first questions I had was, how big a bomb could they put up there? And they had an expert on, and he said you could get up to three kilos up there. Yeah, with were, enough, you know, with enough help. With enough helpers. But um, the thing is, they, they associate this guy who concocts these plots, supposedly, allegedly, uh, with a bombing uh, in 2000. I don't know, last year. Was it last year? Or was it a couple of years ago um, in Saudi Arabia, where um, the it was a Saudi politician or one of the Saudi House of Saud uh, princes <clears throat> was was supposedly the target of a of a of a bombing and it was a, a rectum bomb uh, at the time and um, <laughs> so he had it in his body cavity, i.e., up his backside, um, supposedly, uh, waited in line to see this prince and uh, he apparently got through all the security checks and stuff and. Um, uh, he detonated, supposedly, the story goes, he detonated the bomb. And this was this was actually this terrorist mastermind, chemist, uh, ornithologist, uh, whatever other qualifications he has. Uh, he, proctologist. proctologist as well, obviously. Uh, this was his brother who blew himself up, supposedly, in Saudi Arabia uh, last year, or two, two or three years ago, I think it was 2011, and, um, and tried to kill a Saudi prince. Uh, a Saudi prince was uninjured, he got quite close to him, and he was uninjured because, as everyone said at the time, um, the victim, the intended victim, escaped because the bomber's body appears to have suppressed the force of the blast. Exactly. Uh, duh. And uh, Prince Nayef is the name of the Saudi guy who was supposedly targeted. He appeared on TV saying, um, with two little, I think, little band-aids around his two fingers. That was the extent of his, I think it might have been, you know, he cut himself on a piece of glass or something. Um, he said that 
he was surpri- he surprised me by blowing himself up. Oh yeah. Yes. So he was surprised, uh, and so this is the history. This is the foundation or the basis of the uh, the evidence for for there being a threat to to the entire Western civilization um, from but but bombers. Can we call them that? I don't know. But uh, jihadi butt bombers, um, and this is this is the precedent for it, where it seems it's been proven that. Uh, if you stick explosives up your backside and then detonate them, you're just going to blow yourself up mainly and not do much damage to anybody else. Um, for lots of anatomical reasons where you can't really get that much up there and mechanical reasons, you're not going to do much damage. But, so apparently this is still a good idea, having experimented with in, in this way, allegedly, but I don't believe that this is what happened. But anyway, let's say that this is what happened. They experiment with it and it did no damage because the force of the blast is contained within the body and doesn't really do anything exactly. to anybody. So uh, this guy thinks that that was a good experiment and a successful test run of, of it and he's going to, he's now a threat, he's threatening to do it again or the threat is there that he could do it again according to uh, Western intelligence agencies. And what is interesting in your analysis, uh, I noticed you mentioned that uh, the underwear bomber was brought to the security barriers by a well-dressed man in Schiphol Airport. And if I correctly remember, Schiphol Airport security had a kind of a specific history. Yeah, there's a specific history of Schiphol Airport being the, the security at Schiphol Airport being run by an Israeli uh, security company, the same Israeli security company that was running uh, security at Boston Logan. ICTS. Yeah, Boston Logan Airport on 9-11. And um, there's various different things that have happened through uh, through Schiphol Airport. Um, I think the, um, there was uh, this guy as well, this chemist guy. He was supposedly behind a cartridge printer cartridge bomb bombing scare a few years ago, and I think that came through Schiphol Airport or was routed through Schiphol Airport. So yeah, it's very you know coincidental and interesting that people can pass through these airports easily. It's a sad story actually because you have a. Some uh, Israeli-operated uh, company, including this uh, security company working for Schiphol Airport, that end up escorting this Muslim bomber, who probably targets the good white and Christian and Jewish population. So it's a uh, well, it's except tragic. That, except that he doesn't actually. It's just a big terror yeah. plot scare story, you know. Yeah. Uh, so holiday, holiday makers in the UK and the US, if you haven't yet gone on holidays and you intend to fly anywhere, this is what you have to look forward to. Forget the X-ray scanners, they're already there. No, what you've got to look forward to is more vigorous body searches. Huh? Clothing and shoes will be swabbed for traces of explosives. You will now be required to turn on your laptops, mobile phones, and any other electronic devices as you pass through security. And you're going to do it all twice. That's right. They're going to do two rounds of checks. Yeah. And if anything is discovered suspicious on your body, you can be subjected to a strip search. I.e., you know, you can have an anal probe, basically, by your friendly, uh, you know, immigration officer or, um, you know. So, <laughs> what do you I mean, do? it's kind of like getting, as, as someone mentioned to me recently, it's kind of like getting into that area of uh, where the, the mythological alien... Uh, anal probing that abductees supposedly are subjected to is, has come down to uh, you know down to earth and as a boss <laughs> we know that's where we're going, in the yeah. bottom but part of this whole scare business is, as you know is the whole ISIS thing 
and uh, ISIS is the marauding band of bloodthirsty bearded jihadis taking over half the Middle East unopposed apparently mysteriously and uh, and also a major part of the uh, the fear for the West is is Western kind of radicalized as they call them um, you know British or American citizens who go to Syria have gone to Syria and uh, come back, come back. And, and, you know, do this kind of thing, uh, you know, carry out bombings and stuff. And there's an interesting story, actually. You see this over and over again. I mean, uh, how do they all get there? How do these guys get there, you know? Well, they just go there. And, but, well, why don't they stop them? Uh, well, because I don't know why they don't stop them. Blunders is usually the answer. It's a, it's a blunder. There was a, there was a story just recently of uh, a young guy from uh, Cardiff who uh, was only 17, 17 years old, uh, went to Syria just in the past few months. Uh, followed his brother there, and his brother was known to have gone there. And um, so, so the police were British police, British kind of intel agents were on his case. So they they interviewed and took the younger brother in for questioning. You know, he had been was being going to mosques and doing radicalized stuff like that. Uh, so they took his passport away. And obviously we're keeping close eye on him, but he then just went ahead down to the local passport office and applied for a new passport, got one, and left on a plane. Uh, so apparently, they, even after you know subjecting someone to this kind of uh, uh, this kind of intense scrutiny and taking yeah. his passport away, they're still unable somehow uh, to stop people like that from going to join jihadis in Syria, which supposedly they, this is a major threat to Western civilization. But they're being somehow allowed or able to go to Syria, uh, yet, um, so they're not, not willing to put in any real, or they're unable to put in any real um, controls to stop that kind of thing happening, but they're able to stall ordinary innocent British and American citizens at airports for hours on end and give them intensive kind of body searches. Uh, you know, so, so, so there seems to me a bit of a kind of a, a, a problem there, you know. The passport thing reminds me of uh, Mohamed Merah. You know Mohamed Merah was a Toulouse bombing. He was a shooter. Sh- shooter, yeah. No bombs. Yeah. He was the prototype of the jihadist, allegedly, who went to the uh, Middle East, got some training here, and came back in his uh, initial country, France, mm. and uh, generated chaos there. And what was interesting is that Mohamed Merah while checking his history, it appeared that uh, he had gone to uh, Afghanistan, I think, mm. but also he had gone to Israel. Mm. But in order to be able to go to Afghanistan and then to Israel, you needed these two passports, because you cannot go to those two countries um, when uh, being a traveler. So, and people who have two passports usually are secret agencies, uh, members, agents. Yeah. So, uh, is it really people who spontaneously join jihadist uh, training camps or there are also some uh, intelligence assets that are sent there and uh, that are brought back in their home country in order to create chaos and spread fears and give more opportunities to the to the elites to enforce unacceptable measures because in the end it's a body searching cavities Quite symbolic. It's almost the the most intimate breach of a 
the deepest, uh, not yeah, intended, of, of, of int intimacy. Mm. And even the timing, maybe I'm paranoid, but right before the holidays, it sounds like, okay, you're being slaves, you work all year long, and even your few weeks of hard-earned holidays will spoil them. You're going to have to uh, to wait for uh, four hours, and all the aspects of your intimacy will be uh, breached, invaded. That's a humiliation. Yeah. The, the, the kind of the link I drew is that you, you've got the powers to be desperate to hang on to control. And this is like a literal manifestation of it. They, they sense that they're losing control. So what they, they literally, through their agents, the TSA and whoever else, they literally grow people more, you know, as a reaction. Oh, they're slipping away. Okay, let's grab them some more. Yeah. yeah um, let me just check. We might have a call on the line here. Hi, do we have a call on the line? Yeah, how you doing? Hey, you what's your name? Yeah, what's your name? We yeah, call from? Yeah, this is Ken from West Virginia. And, hey, Ken. Um, Welcome hi, to Ken. Yeah, and uh, well, you were talking earlier about uh, the um, going to the airport and having your shoes swabbed and all this type of stuff. And I know uh, mm -hmm. uh, you lads from Ireland will remember the legendary uh, glycerin test and Frank's Goose and the Birmingham Six. Yeah. And... Uh, and uh, the, the the story was that he swore up and down that this test detected only nitroglycerin, and police uh, lads were on the train playing cards, and uh, and the glycerin coated cards, and uh, so you can imagine. I guess nobody can get on the airplane, or if they're playing cards or anything like that, that's a real uh, serious factor to consider. You know, so well, that's yeah, how, absolutely. That's how crazy it's, it is. It's because uh, this this new kind of you know interrectal bombing threat thing that they're talking about uh, it's been said that it would it's best used or one of the ways that they can you know carry the explosives is inside the sausage casing you know so pig uh, like basically uh sausage casing the line that's the lining of a pig's stomach or whatever or stomach mm -hmm. intestines so um if they t start testing for that, you know, anybody who's been to the butchers and, you know, <laughs> sausage yeah. or something, you know, they're going to they're be subject to uh, uh, invasive uh, searches because uh, you may be a, a crazy bomber. Yeah, that's a good point, Kent. Yeah, because, uh, you, know, you know, that was a very uh, famous, um, you know, it sticks, sticks in my mind, you know, that big fat guy, Frank Skews, jumping, you know, strolling up the stairs to the courthouse and swearing up and down that that detected nitroglycerin and only nitroglycerin, and those guys were playing cards, and it came off on the cards. Of course, yeah. that doesn't, you know, that could be, he, he could have just as easily falsified and lied anyway, but anyway, that there's a case where um, there's a lot of time in jail for that. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, 15 uh, years or something, wasn't it? Yeah. Your point, Ken, reminds me also of the the fact that for decades now, drug smuggling has been using all kinds of techniques, including uh, using the body as a place to hide drugs and it, and um, using the rectum as a uh, as a hiding place is a is a well-known uh, trick. And the border authorities, the police, know about it and have been conducting body searches. And then the drug smugglers realize that. And now you have cases of uh, smugglers swallowing in uh, plastic bags huge quantities of drugs. So uh, how will they cope with a terrorist who, instead of uh, using the bomb the way we depicted it, uh, would swallow it? Oh, it's, well, they'll have to um, cut us open, then, what do you think? 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's, <laughs> that's, 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 that's a... Step, a uh, <laughs> you, you sir, know, step that, over here, a, please. Yeah. Uh, you know, they'll come up with, like, a keyhole surgery, you know. They'll give you a local yeah. anesthetic and uh, yeah. drill a hole and stick, they'll stick a little probe in there and uh, yeah. put a Band-Aid over it, you know, and, you know, all these yeah. modern, modern surgical things. So, yeah, you know, wow. It'll just well, think of the opportunities, job. Man. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Keyhole surgery. Can, yeah. <laughs> in and out. Happen. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, let's look forward to it. Yeah. All right, Ken. Ken, thanks. Thanks for calling. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks, bye. All right. Uh, um, yeah, it's... Uh, and just in case anyone thinks this is, you know, just a blip on the radar, the hysteria will calm down. Don't worry. The Deputy Prime Minister of the UK said, this will be a permanent feature. We live in a new world now. And more vigorous airport searches are going to be, yeah, permanent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let me check to see if we've got another call on the line here. Hi, do we have a call on the line? Um, no, I'm just listening for the time being. You're just listening already. Um, yeah, I just want to get back to this ISIS business and stuff because, uh, you know, they're really ramping that up. It was uh, an extensible reason for Yes, introducing this. It's directly tied to it. I mean, it's on the back of it. It's been going on for the past couple of months. Um, it's on the on that itself. The ISIS business is on the back of the Syria business that has been going on. Uh, you know, while very few or no mainstream media uh, outlets are actually stating that ISIS are making that direct connection that ISIS in Iraq basically came from Syria. That's that's generally the case. That's suppose that's where they came from, um, and obviously you have to factor in then all of the support that Western governments, in particular uh, the U.S. and their client regimes in the Middle East, like the Saudis and the Qataris, uh, all the support they have been giving to the Syrian rebels over the past three or four years since this phony uh, Syrian revolution started. <clears throat> so essentially, ISIS is uh, the child of Western and Western client regimes in the Middle East. Uh, it's their their kind of brainchild, and, and they've supported it, they've nurtured it, they've, they've created it, and they essentially allowed it to uh, enter Iraq and, uh, and and do what it's do what it's been doing. Um, and even a few a few weeks ago, uh, in response to this, so this ISIS business, what are we going to do? Obama has asked Congress for five hundred million dollars to support more moderate. Uh, you know, kind of rebels in Syria and people in Iraq and to support, uh, to give this money to the U.S. military to give it to other people in Syria. This is the result. This is what I was talking about in terms of the fecklessness, the ridiculousness of the situation, you know, where they create this situation uh, themselves and then um, essentially their response is to throw more money at it and uh, to make it worse and make it look like, you know, the, it's not their fault, it's not their responsibility, and at the same time, use it to try and terrorize Western populations into giving up more of their freedoms. And, I mean, they continue on with this ISIS business, and in the news recently there's been, about, uh, there's been stories about um, them wanting to establish uh, the new, a new caliphate, you know. Uh, they actually, officially what they want to establish, supposedly, is uh, the Rashidun Caliphate, which is, was a... Uh, a Muslim caliphate in that area in the seventh century, and it, it spanned all of Saudi Arabia, you know, all of basically from the Mediterranean, so all of the Israel, Palestine, uh, Syria, Lebanon, 
uh, Saudi Arabia and went over into okay, yeah. Egypt, the north of uh, Egypt, and across the, the Maghreb over into Morocco even, and then also across taking in uh, Iran and uh, Kazakhstan and ultimately right over into Southeast Asia. <coughs> so this is supposedly w- w- where they're going, you know. <coughs> this is what they, this is the new boogeyman, and it's not just a bunch of uh, guys hiding out in a cave in Afghanistan type thing who threaten our freedom and uh, democracy. It's it's a new empire, a new Muslim empire, caliphate, spanning a large part of uh, the Middle East and, and Southeast Asia. Uh, this is what we're being told. This is what they claim supposedly they want. And these are the guys who are being funded by Western intelligence agencies to essentially say this <coughs> to scare people. Because it's kind of interesting because in 2004, uh, under the Bush administration, uh, the National Intelligence Council, which is the you know, grouping of all the intelligences in the U.S., came up with a report. On, uh, they predicted that in the year 2020, uh, there would be a new caliphate um, that extended across the areas that I just, just described and that these ISIS people are now saying they, they want to establish and they're demanding that all Muslims in these areas bow down to them and give allegiance to them. And so the U.S. intelligence, the National Intelligence, National intelligence Council said in 2004 that in 2020 this would be a reality. Uh, but they based their prediction um, not on any actual evidence. They didn't provide any evidence to say why this would happen in, in 2020. At that time, 16 years later, uh, they presented it in the form of a fictional letter from bin Laden's son, to a member of his, or Bin Laden's grandson, to a member of his family, uh, saying that this is, you know, this is what we plan, we have now, essentially, we have this caliphate. It, it, was, a, it was a ridiculous kind of fairy story. I mean, they didn't even try and kind of make it sound real. They actually said, admitted that this was a fictional scenario, but they we're using this, this, um, this idea, this concept to try and convey the, what we believe will happen. Um, it was actually the report was called "Mapping the Global the Global Future," um, a hypothetical letter from Bin Laden's grandson to a family member in 2020. So the question there is, how are we meant to interpret that uh, now? Um, you know, how did they get it so right? This is 10 years later, afterwards uh, after that report, "Mapping the Global Future" by, by U.S. intelligence, and 10 years later, we're seeing that what they predicted about Bin Laden's grandson is actually at least being said or demanded by this group of uh, Muslim jihadis. Um, but they had no evidence for it. So how did they get it so right? You know, um, Maybe because they engineer it. Partially. We can say in Maghreb with those fake or those phony uh, spring revolutions in Middle East, in countries like Qatar, Saudi Arabia, the Western powers have been systematically overthrowing uh, democratically, democratically um, secular regimes in Arab countries and uh, putting in power Wahhabit uh, extremist jihadist regimes. So well, they are manufacturing. Demo- they weren't democratic, but go on. In some cases, at least. Yeah. And uh, uh, no, none. None. <laughs> no. <Okay. laughs> uh, anyway, in, uh, today. We can say, it's fair to say, that uh, the U.S. is uh, implementing the development of, a radical, of radical regimes in our countries. So they're creating the, uh, this... Uh, yes, but then they're using them partially. They don't create this completely out of whole cloth. I think what they realized is that a long time ago they saw that there's a natural, sort of, so to speak, undercurrent of integration 
in the Islamic world. Islam is a religion. It's also really a political program. And I think a lot of moderate Islamic people, certainly the mantra coming through the Iranian revolution is that the end goal for the Iranian visionaries would be that their type of moderate Islam, Islamic rule would span all Islamic countries. I think the U.S. tapped into that, realized that's happening anyway, and just sought to subvert that natural process of integration by inserting this extreme element such that they could hold up bin Laden as a caricature of this natural tendency towards integration and then do what they will to it, invade, insert jihadists, uh, make deals. And they got cooperation from the Gulf states because they're partly seeing the same vision too. They wa- they're buddy-buddy with the American plan to the extent that at the end of it, it's going to be bye-bye America. That's what I think. Mm. Turkey as well. Turkey has dreams of being the center point for this Islamic caliphate that spans most of the, the globe's uh, most of the, the, the former region of, of the caliphate, of, of the old Islamic caliphate. So I think that's part of the internal power politics of why they're with the Americans and suddenly distrustful because there is a natural, and the Americans are tapping into that. You know? okay. Yeah, and uh, what Sean had is, is concerning the, the way this integration is uh, implemented. What's the, the vision well, amongst uh, the, 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 the worst fear, The worst fear for the Americans is that this process happens, and at the end of it, they do not have cheap oil. Same for Europe. The worst fear is that the European Union becomes strong and independent and U.S. troops are not there. And instead, they're looking east to Russia. My question is, I'm not an expert of the field, so that's why I'm wondering. In the Islam doctrine, this notion of integration, of uh, expansion, proselytism, that we can see in uh, most doctrines, most ideology, is not necessarily bad. It depends on the way the integration and the extension of the sphere of power is conducted. So what's the ideology? How do Muslim leaders see the expansion of well, the it, that, territory? That would be a kind of... It's a, that's a complicated <clears throat> question because it's not just religion. It's really, at this point, hundreds of years into it, it's civilizational. It's partly cultural. It's historical. The, the connections, that, the things that connect people in the Maghreb with people in the Middle East proper, all the way across to Indonesia, yeah, on the face of it, it's just Islam, just religion, but it's, it has formed a kind of a, a unicultural, a kind of homogenous yeah. okay. similarity of culture. Well, I don't, to be honest, I don't think they have any, there aren't any <clears throat> genuine leaders, who, Muslim leaders who have that kind of an idea of, of, of creating a new Muslim empire. Uh, that's just scaremongering uh, by, by the West uh, for the purpose of this uh, promotion of the clash of civilizations, which allows the Western powers to kind of, uh, you know, extend their, their influence and project their power around the world. I mean, uh, in any normal human uh, civilization, those kind of extremist ideas of conquering the world or conquering or imposing your will on, on vast swathes of the planet or, or other countries uh, uh, are seen as pathological and uh, the majority of people are not pathological therefore um, those people generally speaking don't rise to power unless it's by uh, by by serious force and serious 
Uh, I mean, it, it kind of depends. You can see it at different points in history, but um, generally speaking, it's only pathologicals at the top who, who would aspire to that. And unless they get support from not just internally in their country, but from externally, history has shown this, uh, they, they don't go anywhere, you know, because it's essentially anti-human, uh, anti-humanistic, anti it's not normal for human beings to go along with that. So it's a very particular process that will be required to, to galvanize, you know, millions of ordinary people to, to support that. And, I mean, an example of a particular process would be um, psychological manipulation on, on a mass scale like 9-11. I mean, you, you have uh, millions of Americans, at least after 9-11, who supported that kind of a, an expansion around the world, even though it was uh, explained to them in a different context. They weren't told that this is what it was for, but they supported uh, American troops heading off around the world en masse to, to conquer and invade and bomb other countries, you know. But generally speaking, it's not normal. It has to be uh, manipulated, uh, you know, to get people's support, you know. So, um, yeah, so, I mean... The, the the whole situation is kind of uh, is kind of ridiculous. Like we we're just talking about this ISIS group and stuff, and whether or not they're real or you know they are obviously they are real, you know. But they're the result of facts on the ground created by Western powers who um, who give money and weapons and training to certain small groups uh, who can go into a country and and into several countries and create chaos and mayhem. And then that becomes a reality for the people back in Western countries that, oh my God, these Muslims are all going crazy. They're trying to take over the world. But in that sense, that's a fantasy. That's not really what's happening because these people have extremely limited power in reality, despite what the media yeah. says. Uh, but it is actually happening. I mean, these ISIS nut jobs are going around in Iraq, shooting people and killing people. Um, but it's no threat to the West. Um, <clears throat> it's just used... From for propaganda purposes by the West to to try and hold on to it, like Neil was saying, to try and hold on to these uh, countries in the Middle East that are resource rich, to try and hold on to them for Western powers. Um, and <clears throat> it's, I mean, it can't, it, it has an end point where it can't go beyond it. it, it they run up against a wall ultimately, you know. I mean, where, where their where their machinations become exposed, they they become more and more desperate and more and more extreme in the policies that they try and enact, and eventually it becomes more difficult for the media to spin it around to the yeah. whole, you know, oh my God, we're all under threat, and you start to see the reality of the situation. That is just uh, a kind of a power play, and it has historical precedent as well. I mean, ISIS, for example, should be seen, as far as I'm concerned, it should be seen in the same way as, uh, and this is accepted historical, you know, historical fact, that, uh, for example, the Americans trained and funded uh, paramilitary death squad groups in Latin America all throughout the kind of 50s and 60s yeah. and 70s and 80s. And that was just, uh, you know, people who were trained by uh, American, you know, advisors in Fort Benning in, in, in the U.S. and in other places uh, and given weapons and money and go down and to go back to their country, uh, Guatemala or any other South American country, several other South American countries, to go and start killing people. Uh, to impose a kind of uh, or maintain a regime, a dictatorial regime, in the country that was that was uh, compliant to or compliant with or, or in line with American uh, interests uh, interest in that country. So ISIS is exactly the same thing in terms of the Middle East. And they're simply being funded and trained to sow chaos and to kind of stir things up and to ensure that no indigenous, uh, 
you know, nationalistic, progressive, moderate government or governments in the Middle East and beyond uh, rise to the power and, and because those kind of governments tend to say, well, <clears throat> we want to keep our natural resources for ourselves. We want to build up the country. We want, we want to become independent. We want to engage in, uh, like Russia, like Putin has been saying repeatedly over the past several months and years, really, um, that he, he wants <clears throat> all normal kind of leaders in different countries want see what's going on in the world, see this unipolar world and see the attempts by, see what the U.S. has done over the past many decades of imposing its will on everybody. They say, well, listen, we, want, uh, we don't want to impose our will uh, back on you. There's a lot of projection there from the U.S. In, 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 in accusing other countries of trying to dominate the world. And, you know, uh, they're simply uh, accusing other countries of what they themselves have been doing. What these countries want is, as, like I said, as Putin is saying, um, is they want to trade and interact with other countries in the world on an equal basis. Just a fair deal. On a fair, yeah, fair deal on an equal basis. And that's, uh, that is anathema to the, to the American way of doing things because the American way of doing things is all or the vast majority of the, <clears throat> the lion's share of, of, of everything yeah. for the U.S. and everybody else gets what we allow them to get type of thing. And that's obviously unfair and it's amazing that it's, it's persisted for so long. And in fact, it has only persisted, as we've seen, uh, through the use of force and primarily American force. Do you, how do you interpret this uh, movement of ISIS troops or mercenaries, I don't know how to call them, from Syria to Iraq? Does it mean that uh, the Western powers, the U.S. empire, Job the Al-Ashad case and uh, doesn't plan to get rid of the Syrian regime and therefore transfer the troops to Iraq because that's where the next uh, project would be implemented? I don't know. It's hard to know what exactly they're, they're planning or what they're thinking at this point because it hasn't worked out for them in Syria. Um, and as we've mentioned in previous shows, um, Putin kind of interceded there and through a... Through a, he was the fly in the soup in that particular project of bombing, NATO bombing of, of Syria and finally getting rid of Assad. Um, but as I, as I mentioned just a little while ago, Obama has asked $500 million to support moderate Syrian rebels, as he calls them. So obviously that, that old plan, the original plan uh, of continuing the so-called revolution in Syria is, is continuing. Um, they may just have decided to put it on the back burner and keep it going. Uh, but the ISIS thing uh, seems to have come in. I don't know if it'll work, but their their idea is to is to try and spread as much fear and chaos, like to to dismantle Iraq, as we mentioned, I think, in previous shows, to to break Iraq up into three countries. I mean, I, Syria wasn't working. Let's focus on Iraq now. We can get these people from Syria. And maybe it was a plan all along to to develop over the course of the past three or four years this kind of group of uh, mercenaries, paramilitaries, essentially ISIS in 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 Syria, get them you know, battle-hardened and, and trained in that theater and then move them into Iraq to get rid of the Maliki uh, government in Iraq and ultimately create such a horrible situation there that there would be calls for um, the breaking up the long-held uh, goal of the West to break up Iraq into three separate kind of, you know, autonomous regions or whatever you want to call mm. them. Um, and this, obviously, this is in line with what the Saudis have wanted for a long time as well. They wanted basically, you know, the, the Middle East remade or controlled and kept down, you know, in, in a way that would ensure that the status quo remains. But there's also evidence now that 
the Saudis are getting a little bit yeah. suspicious. Uh, the Saudi royal family are pooping their Semtex-lined pants. Yeah, exactly, yeah. They're getting a bit scared because, I mean, when you're dealing with someone like that and you've been dealing with that kind of a policy for so long where it's basically, really, there are no rules and it's uh, everybody grabs what they can for themselves. There's no love loss between people. I mean, there's alliances for a while, but they can easily break down very quickly. And it seems that uh, the Saudis over the past few months have been becoming more and more uh, concerned about just where this whole ISIS thing and the Syrian thing, where it was going and where these this, these U.S. kind of partly or largely U.S. controlled and funded um, paramilitaries in Syria and now in Iraq, what's going to be done with them, uh, what they can do and where they might be encouraged to go next. And Saudi Arabia is just, you know, most of it's desert and you just have some kind of bigger cities like uh, Riyadh and stuff and I mean, yeah, if the Saudis were smart enough, they might be thinking, well, you know, what's, what's to stop them getting rid well, of us they, type they, of thing, you know? There's a report that they sent 30,000 troops to protect their border, yeah. the Saudi-Iraq border. And they're afraid that the conflict expands, but at the same time, the Saudi family has been close ally to the U.S. for decades. Yeah. They've yeah. had a lot of privilege. They've been protected in the Middle East. They've they could breach human rights for years and years without having any problem with that. So yeah, but um, things change, you know. I mean, everybody's getting a bit skittish. It's got to that point in the whole game, in the great game, where all the players are getting a little bit skittish about, you know, getting a bit concerned about, you know, what how is this going to work out ultimately, ultimately in the end, you know? And um, can I rely on this person that I, this country or this group of people in the country that I've relied on for so many decades? Things are changing, especially with the resurgence of Russia and stuff and um, dwindling resources and climate change and all this kind of many different things that have come into play that create are creating instability, uh, not only on the ground in countries with, like we've mentioned, and we'll talk about it in a while, with about earth changes and you know climate chaos type thing, um, but also kind of um, instability I don't know, instability, psychologically, essentially, where, where they yeah. see instability on the ground, they see instability in politics, and then people start to get a bit concerned. Uh, they become psychologically unstable and start just, I mean, all you have to do is just go the first step towards, re, you know, thinking that I can no longer trust this person, and you take some little action based on that, and then your your partner in crime says, what the hell are yeah. you doing? Okay, we need to do something. The Saudis look like they're getting a bit. We need to put this in place. Then that it's a feedback. It's it's a yeah, it, 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 it compounds, you know. But this change, this coming change, do you think that on a political level, some leaders are realizing that say, we might reach the end of this unipolar world and that the American empire is reaching uh, its end? Here I have in mind the declaration of uh, Putin, Vladimir Putin, on the 4th of July, quite a symbolic day, who proposed the creation of uh, Eurasia that will seal the fate of the American empire, by definition, because apparently uh, the U.S. are not welcome in this uh, um, vision, in this project. Um, well, I think... Yeah, he... Yeah, he, he made a... It was a speech to the Russian diplomatic corps. It's an annual speech that he gives in Moscow. And he said... Yeah, he used the phrase, from Lisbon to Vladivostok, i.e. all Europe, and, and Asia. Of, all, all Asia, 
suggesting that he's he's actually used the phrase before, but uh, yeah, he says it again. It's kind of a Eurasian agenda along the lines of Mackinder's World Island theory that this would naturally integrate to the exclusion of Western preferences. And he explicitly also said, U.S. world domination has ended. And then a commentator adds, Russia will be reintegrating the Eurasian landmass, the former USSR, while promoting better relations with Europe, our natural partner. Yeah, I mean, the thing from a historical perspective that people need to understand is that America, as this uh, you know, dominant force in the world that it has been, is an anomaly. It's, uh, it's a kind of a aberration. It, it should never have happened. Uh, and it only happened because of um, a particular kind of avaricious and uh, maybe psychopathic mindset among politicians, uh, political leaders and military leaders in the U.S. over the past you know, 100, 120 years. Um, <clears throat> if you just look at the, that period of time, there is a kind of a break from uh, you know, you had you had obviously you had the, the industrial revolution and countries kind of tooling up and becoming you know all the the, the new technologies that allowed that, that facilitated you know a change in society, a radical change in society and the industrial revolution, and then into the kind of early late 19th century and into the early 20th century. You know, Russia. There were many kind of great powers then. You know, mm-hmm. several great powers then. Yeah. And um, but the first the first and second world war uh, radically changed what would have been a normal development of the world at that point. Russia should have continued on as it was up until the Bolshevik Revolution uh, as a major, uh, a major power in the world because of its size and its resources. Um, but that was thwarted by uh, the First World War and the funding of the Bolshevik Revolution and the turning of uh, the promotion of that kind of an ideology in Russia and the you know the removal of the old kind of regime, the the, the czars, um, and then during the first and second world war, during the first world war, as a result of the first world war and afterwards, and then leading up to the second world war, in both of those cases, the U.S. consolidated its power essentially through finances, and it it, it essentially um, Russia and all of the European powers were, and including uh, Japan and Asian powers were were um, bankrupted essentially. And the U.S. came out of it quite clean and in a very powerful position, and that set the tone for the 20th century. Um, and of course, uh, after the Second World War, you had the communist threat uh, that was used and promoted, and it was bogus and completely, you know, it was it was a, it was one giant lie, really. But it was the evil empire. Yeah, it was used uh, to, complete projection. It was lo- yeah, it was mm-hmm. used for further consolidation of U.S. control around the world because the U.S military and the CIA in particular went around the world um, invading other countries and overthrowing dictators, overthrowing governments and installing dictators um, and consolidating US economic control of many countries on the basis of the commie threat, the communist threat. So that should, couldn't have happened in the way it did without that communist threat that was fabricated. And then in 1990, you see, so that happened all, all the way through the decades after the Second World War, and the U.S. you know became more and more powerful. And then you have the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, which was just you know another reason for that. But well, we won't get into that. But the, so the, the commie threat disappeared in 1990. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and within a few years that had already been growing in the background someone had been planning it apparently but within a few years in 1993 you had the first World Trade Center bombing and the rise of Osama bin Laden and then within another few years 9-11 and that brings us up to today you know <clears throat> so these are all kind of like very strange events that that uh, all conspired together, if I can use that word, conspired to to create the U.S. American dominated world that we have today. But um, that could only have, it, it, as I said, it was an anomaly, an aberration. It was not natural, not normal, and ultimately it was never going to be sustainable. And it's not sustainable, and it's breaking down right now because, uh, particularly, and Russia is a major player in this because of its size and its resources, and. Uh, Russia has, you know, been resurgent since 1990, and, and you know, it took a, maybe a decade, but especially with the coming, uh, with the arrival of Putin and stuff, and the policies that were implemented by him and the people behind him, uh, it's tending towards putting the world to rights again, a more balanced world in the way it should be. Because, I mean, and, and in that context, what you see is you have this Eurasian landmass that is all contiguous with all these countries, and put it this way, from Lisbon to Vladivostok and down into even uh, Asia and stuff, you don't need the rest of the world. That, that part of the world, which is all one landmass, does not need America, does not need even South America, but South America would be welcome. But the point is, listen, America, get, on, get, on, uh, get with the program here and you know, like give it up, basically, because we don't need you anymore, and they're desperately trying to prevent that from happening. They are really, you know, going to extreme lengths to try and maintain this aberrant status quo that was established over the past century. And from Lisbon to uh, Vladivostok, you can drive all the way, it's one and mass, so it means you don't have to take a plane. Of course. So it means you don't have to go through uh, the previously mentioned uh, security measures. Yeah, yeah the no only more. one who's asked to fly anywhere are people in Britain and people in the US. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a price to pay for imperialism. Apparently they don't mind being groped, which, yeah. if you look at some of the recent stories in the UK press about pedophiles and high power, eh, the two things seem to go together. I just want to make a comment about this to sort of slightly change the topic. Um, an iconic figure in the UK, I mean, I remember watching him on TV growing up, called Rolf Harris. He was kind of like a kid's TV presenter. He did an art show, so, you know, completely clean fun, clean TV programming, right? Well, there was a case going on for a few weeks there in the UK. No one believed it until the verdict came down. Guilty on all counts of child sex abuse from 50s, 60s, 70s, all the way up to recently. And he is now the third pretty much iconic figure who was at the BBC to be sent down or well, to have been two, discovered the two in the ones. last year. Who are the two, the others? two others are Stuart Hall, uh, famous BBC presenter, and of course Jimmy Savile. And between the three of them, you're talking about thousands and thousands of victims. That's just three. God knows how many more there are. Yeah. But my, my problem with it is that, that for me, these entertainers, popular entertainers, I mean, the impression I get is that the people investigating this, okay, there's a police who investigated, but the police are hamstrung by political considerations and manipulation. Uh, they basically take their orders from their higher-ups in politics. Um, so they have uh, a large dossier, I would say, a very large dossier on possibly hundreds of people 
many of them, perhaps the majority, probably the majority of them politicians. Um, so they look at this and they pick from that dossier who they are going to yeah. kind of sacrifice, sacrifice. to the public uh, to appease yeah. public, growing public anger and awareness of, uh, of this kind of endemic paedophilia in high places in the UK. Uh, because and there are reports coming out just recently. Uh, immediately after, I mean, yeah. maybe maybe there something they didn't consider is that when they out one of these entertainers, one of these TV personalities, it kind of brings it back to the fore, and they can't avoid then other kind of journalists and you know whistleblowers and stuff coming out and saying, yeah, but you know, there's more to this story, and it comes back, and then it focuses again on the politicians, you know. Yeah. It, and uh, you see uh, a pattern reoccurring here, like in the case of uh, mass shooting or mass bombing or assassination, you have these mainstream media who support the lone gunner, lone bomber theory. And here again, in the case of pedophilia, like in the Dutro case and many other cases, the mainstream media, the elites, are promoting the lonely predator theory. Mm. And... Uh, Famous journalist is very convenient scapegoats or tree hiding the forest because they're highly meditized. So they satisfy this need of the public for we need a scapegoat. We need uh, we need uh, someone to be sacrificed. But at the same time, you have uh, the story of 114 files missing from the Westminster pedophile ring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, let's just so the sentence was handed down, and this brought up. Another whistleblower came to the fore. He's actually been in the, in the UK press for a while. Uh, that led to the police in the UK opening an investigation into 40 politicians, past and present. That's, that was announced on Saturday, the 5th, uh, yesterday. And yes, today, headline, child abuse files lost at home office. Sparked fears of cover-up. Yeah. Well, there's uh, the kind of... The details behind this are that yeah there are, um, there are apparently more than ten. It could be a hundred or it could be eleven, but it's probably more likely a hundred. More than ten politicians on a list held by police investi investigating Westminster, Westminster pedophile ring. Westminster being the, the British Houses of Parliament or the British Congress. Congress. Um, so this goes back to and and then what you mentioned the 114 missing files. There was a dossier handed to. Uh, the then Home Secretary, that's the Secretary of State in the UK, uh, Leon Britton, and he uh, continues to be an MP today, uh, and he's now Lord Britton. Uh, he was handed a dossier in 1985, I think, uh, uh, into paedophile ring amongst uh, high-level politicians in the UK, and he lost it. Uh, oh, well, he doesn't know what he did with it. First of all, he said he didn't get it. Then he said... Uh, I got it, but I gave it to someone. And then when it was actually dug up, there were 114 files missing out of um, 587 or something like that. 527. But, but the interesting thing is this guy, Leon Britton, uh, who's Lord Britton, who's a politician who was handed this dossier and kind of went, yeah, let's put that under the table, carpet, uh, concrete. Let's hide it somewhere, obviously. He uh, just uh, yesterday w it was revealed that he himself has been questioned by police over a historical rape claim. So it's, it's really, it's wonderful in the whole kind of 
you know, the milieu of political milieu in the UK there. I mean, you just read some of this stuff. It's crazy. Everybody, not everybody, but there's so many of them and they're all implicated. I mean, you have this guy who's like, initially he said, he said, well, what is he accused of uh, hiding a a file? He said, no, I didn't hide it. I give it to someone else and and I have nothing to do with it. And then it's okay, but uh, now we're also going to accuse you of rape. And he's like, whatever, (laughs) you know. Get out of my face. Um, so, uh, oh look, and then, and then oh, look other, over there. Look, there's a war going on. Look, yeah, look. What about jih- jihadi? <laughs> uh, so, um, and then there's, they're all coming out of the woodwork. All the older guys, you know, um, under Margaret Thatcher's government. This guy, Britain, was under Margaret Thatcher. He was the Home Secretary. And uh, there's another guy, um, Tebbit, who has said he himself isn't implicated, but he uh, has basically come out and said, yeah. Um, the government may have orchestrated an establishment cover-up of child abuse by senior politicians when I was in government, yes. Um, he claimed he was a former Tory party or Conservative Party chairman under Margaret Thatcher, and he claimed there was a mindset to protect the system, which, had been, which has been uh, shown to have gone spectacularly wrong because incidents of abuse grew. He said, at the time, I think most people would have thought that the establishment, the system, was to be protected. And if a few things had gone wrong here and there, that it was more important to protect the system few things. than to delve, yes, too far into it. Um, yeah, I mean, that's his attitude. Obviously, I don't know if he, he may end up being implicated as well, but he's come out and said, yes, there was a cover-up, and, but it was the establishment that needed to be protected and the, the abuse, horrible abuse of children hundreds, probably thousands of children, uh, that well, there's a few things that went wrong and ultimately the system had to be protected. This is what we all agreed on. That's why, incidentally, in this dossier, this dossier is apparently alleged to have, that was given to this guy, Lord, Lord Britain, in, in 1985, had details on Savile and it was covered up. So Savile continued on for another, what, 30 years almost? abusing children because had to be protected. Now, the system here obviously isn't just politics. The system is media, the media, entertainers, children's entertainers had to be protected as well. The entire psychiatric and hospital system, basically. Judges, attorneys, police officers, businessmen, yeah. bankers. And I feel some vindication here. I'd like to, uh, well, you know, I don't advocate violence, but in uh, not long after this, uh, this dossier was, that was never exposed until today in 1985 under Margaret Thatcher, and this guy, Tebbit, who says that a few things had gone wrong and we had to protect the system, uh, there was a Conservative Party conference in Brighton in the UK, and Margaret Thatcher was there, and this guy, Tebbit, was there, and other Conservative Party um, leaders or politicians. And uh, the IRA blew up the hotel. Oh. So close, so close. But they didn't. Uh, Margaret Thatcher was in the toilet at the time. Ah, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, it's just. I mean, I'm not saying I don't advocate violence and stuff, but I'm just, you know, I mean, obviously at the time that was denounced as horrible, evil terrorism and stuff. But when you look at the people and the attitude they have towards children and the abuse of children. Uh, I mean, uh, surely, surely it would have been no loss, you know. I mean, you can hardly deny to that. No, I mean, an act of evil when the people who are being attacked are apparently 
pure evil themselves. I mean, it's an objective statement that the world would be a better place if certain people were dead. Yeah. You can't really get around it. I mean, to bring this back a little, I mean, just as an aside, I I went to, this is for the NSA, by the way, a confession. I went to a jihadi website today, oh. jihad.com, and I was just looking at some of their videos. I mean, they love killing people and getting those videos up as quickly as possible. So they've got lots of promo videos. Oh, my God. It's really, it's just horrific. They just drive by people in their cars and just shoot it up randomly. Thank you, Vietnam. Yeah. yeah, it's just it's totally random. Um, and, and they're laughing and, you know, they're clearly hopped up on drugs or something. And invariably, you hear a Cockney or English accent. And it has been said by a lot of the fighters huh. in Syria, you know, the worst. We're trying to do something here. It's probably, you know, they're completely brainwashed as well. But at least we're trying to do something like win Syria back or whatever from the evil Assad. But it, these Brit jihadis who come over, they are the worst. They're the ones who go around cutting up people and eating their hearts. And I mean, the stories are insane. Uh, another aside, another video had um, a, a kind of passport burning session in Baghdad, I think yesterday. And you, you look at these guys... One of them gets up and makes a speech. And, I mean, they're all Caucasian. They're all white. <laughs> I'm like, wonder where are these guys from, you know? I guess they're, they're supposed to be from Chechnya or somewhere in Central Asia. But... Uh, they're mercenaries. They're hired, hired and paid mercenaries by, ultimately, by Western, Western powers. That's, I mean, that's all there is to it. Because, I mean, those kind of people don't get very far haven't got very far. All you have to do is look at, look at, here's the thing. Throughout the, throughout the period of the British Empire and the American Empire, the more modern American Empire, uh, in countries around the world that were occupied uh, by the British or by the Americans, particularly by the British, uh, because the Americans did a little bit better, but, um, there were groups of people, ordinary people, supposedly like the groups that are in the Middle East now, in Syria and Iraq and stuff, who rose up, tried to rise up against uh, the British occupying force. And invariably they failed. All of them failed. It wasn't very hard, ultimately, for the British or the Americans to put them down. That's the historical reality of what happens when a group of, you know, in, in the terms of the day, crazy terrorists, revolutionaries, resistant fighters, whatever, try to overthrow the existing power. That's what happens. Uh, the fact that today the narrative has been totally switched around and now it's a completely different world, apparently, where these groups are just a bunch of, you know, a few hundred or a few thousand can suddenly take over all of Iraq unimpeded. What's changed? What, is it modern weaponry? I don't think so. You don't have modern weaponry. They just have the same kind of guns, more or less. So... I mean, right there you have a problem in, in the narrative and trying to explain how this can possibly happen. It hasn't happened in history where a group of, of, of you know, resistance fighters or terrorists, whatever you want to call them, tried to overthrow a power. So why is it happening today? It's happening today because they are being allowed to do it. You just have to switch the whole thing around. You know, these are now 
they're not genuine terrorists, they're the empire's terrorists, and they're being funded by the empire. Therefore, that's why they succeed. That's why they, you know. Um, do you think the same story we repeat in uh, Ukraine, although it's slightly different, but basically, from what I understand, you have uh, a neo-Nazi Ukrainian government with an official Ukrainian army backed by the Western powers that seems to be quite eager to uh, conduct an ethnic cleansing of the Russian uh, population in the east of the country. Uh, recently, they bombed civilians in uh, Slavyansk, in the eastern yep. part, Rus- pro-Russian uh, part of Ukraine. But the difference here is that, that you have some independentists or some people who are trying to fight for, for their life, I suppose, because I see the ethnic cleansing coming. But the difference is that you have Russia nearby. Mm. So... No, how do you see Russia behaving? And well, first of all, can we just describe what's going on in Ukraine? I mean, yeah. um, they have bombed the crap out of Slavyansk. The city is apparently retaken by the Kiev junta. Uh, just before we came on air, they've launched airstrikes against the next biggest city of Lugansk. Yeah, they're going all out. They're just firing at will at the moment. Despite all the talks about peace, they. Uh, What's their plan? They mean the opposite. Well, whose plan? The, the Ukrainians? Yeah. The, if they don't have one. The plan works through them. And I think the person who summed this up best was Putin's economic advisor recently, Sergei Glazyev, who gave a talk somewhere in Russia and it was put up on YouTube and translated. And uh, he made it clear that the Russians are, aware, are fully aware that this is, you know, the U.S. getting to Russia through Ukraine. Um, there, he's the way. He, now, was he being overly paranoid, or was he being pretty realistic? He said he sees things developing like this. In February, there were like a thousand or so Nazi types armed. Now there's more like ten thousand. By the end of the summer, going into fall, uh, with the current pattern, they're going to have half a million armed Nazi, actual Nazis. And they're going to turn them loose and they're going to invade Crimea or retake it as, as they see it. And what do we, Russia, he's speaking as a Russian representative, what do we do then? He said, I don't really know. I, maybe they do have a plan, but right now I'm like, what, what can I do? <laughs> I mean, we start a world war. No, they don't want to, of course. Um, he also gave another clue in another forum recently, um, which was interesting. He said the way to end the civil war in Ukraine, not the way to end it, but the way it will end, is when the U.S. dollar collapses. And he's working hard to uh, de-dollarize the the world. Maybe he didn't. He didn't suggest any agency on his part. He's, he's just describing it, you know, as a process on the way it is happening. So I think for the Russian part, it's a waiting game try and keep the situation contained, the U.S. is going to collapse sooner or later. For the Americans, it's just, it's just <coughs> smash and grab, take everything. Yeah, you have to expect uh, the Americans you know, feeling like they're about to lose everything they've had, uh, feeling that pressure. Uh, they're very dangerous. Uh, they would... Not that there have been many things that they wouldn't do or they haven't done in the past, but in that kind of situation where they feel uh, themselves in the rather 
unusual or unfamiliar position of being uh, kind of on the losing mm-hmm. side, uh, they become very, very, very dangerous. Yeah, and um, uh, in Ukraine, I mean, there's recent reports are that uh, the the independence, pro-Russian independence groups, whatever you want to call them, uh, have left Slavyansk and moved back to Donetsk. That basically, mm-hmm. that, that the Ukrainian, the Kiev, let's call it, military has made a lot, quite a lot of gains. They've been upping their their campaign against them, but ultimately, ultimately, that uh, those people's republics, uh, the, the pro-Russian independence uh, fighters, are largely dependent on Russia for uh, most of their resources to wage any kind of campaign. And I don't think the Russians are willing to uh, up the ante uh, against the kind of the Kiev and the Poroshenko and the right. puppet regime in uh, in Ukraine, uh, I don't think they're willing to, to to ultimately be responsible for sacrificing you know thousands and thousands of civilian lives. Uh, I, I don't know. They have they maybe have different different plans, different policies uh, to try and kind of get what they what they want out of it. But uh, I don't see it going that far, you know. And if uh, I mean, it's a baiting game, really, what you see in Ukraine has been going on there. The U.S. has been trying to bait Russia. Russia has been trying to bait the U.S. in, in a different way, you know, uh, to have each of them trying to get the other tried in the court of public opinion as the the war criminals, whatever, you know, for, for killing civilians and stuff. And it's been this kind of, like, struggle between them. Um, ultimately, if... I mean, none of them want to look bad. None of them want to have UN resolutions passed against them. None of them want to get to the point where they're where they're uh, denounced as kind of like an evil, kind of civilian killing kind of regime. So, if, but, if, but, they, if they were to do what uh, what this guy, economic advisor to Putin, was suggesting, um, if the Ukrainians were to do that, to have you know half a million or however many uh, invade. Um, either Eastern Ukraine or Crimea. I mean, it's whoever 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 sets the first foot forward, whoever whoever takes the first action is is ultimately responsible. If if they invade Crimea and start forcibly shooting, uh, you know, forcibly trying to take back Ukraine and shooting and and having essentially a civil war there, um, they're going to be the ones who look bad. I mean, they're going to although. You know, can they? Do they feel they can justify taking back Crimea because it was taken from us? But it was taken from you without a shot being fired, and it's the will of the people of Crimea. It's very difficult there, you know. And but at this point, the the wild card, like I said, is the U.S., where they basically have nothing to lose and never had anything to lose with all the people dying around the world. So they're willing to 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 encourage that kind of a policy. It's whether or not saner heads in 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 Ukraine itself and in uh, in Europe. Would would intercede because ultimately, you know. Yeah, that, that's why I wanted to go. Europe might play, could play, a role in this uh, Ukrainian conflict, and uh, it reminds me of this um, recent case of a double spy that was arrested in Germany and was working for the U.S. So it's reminiscent of the the recent events last October, when uh, Merkel discovered Snowden leaked information that she was wi- tight taped by the NSA since 2002. And now again, there's a case of a 
individuals spying in Germany against German interests for the U.S. So is it uh, Putin who uh, discreetly put some uh, oil on the fire and tried to gain the uh, interest and the uh, friendship of Europe? It's possible that that's the case, but what I find amazing is that how there can be any trust, even at that overt level or political overt level, uh, between the Germans and the Americans after this came out. How can Merkel have any trust in the Americans or think that they're why why would why would they do that? What she said, I mean, how does she even talk to Obama or whoever she talks to? I mean, at that level, I mean, and yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if if the Russians. Um, are engaged in this kind of a, like they have been in, in the past few months with the leaked telephone conversation about Ukraine with uh, Newland and Payat. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that's a very smart move because you understand the nature of the beast uh, in America and that it basically is trying to screw everybody over and is a double-dealing, duplicitous, you know, backstabbing, hypocritical partner. And you want to bring that to light to the other partners and, 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 and tell them, listen, do you really want to trust these people and give them evidence why they shouldn't trust them? And, yeah, I mean, it's all looking pretty bad for the U.S. at this point in time. You know, it is on many different fronts, it's looking very, very bad for them. Uh, ultimately, the real politic of, like we mentioned before, the whole Eurasian landmass and the fact that ultimately they don't need the U.S. anymore. Um, what the U.S. has over the EU, members in the EU and uh, elsewhere, I don't know. I, it seems to me that right now all they have is uh, attempts at, uh, you know, uh, dirty digs and, uh, you know, manipulation and blackmail and that kind of thing. And there's, there's a blackmail case uh, with, uh, is an yeah. example of it, if you if you can just extrapolate out from that, from the case where the, yeah, where the French uh, had signed a deal with uh, Russia to make Russia to uh, transport kind of large transport ships, uh, military ships. Yeah. And um, the U.S. previously had, uh, how, by whatever mechanism, they had fined uh, a French bank, BNP Paribas, $9 billion yeah. for trading with Cuba and Iran. Exactly. Even the reason that they traded with them, well, even the reason that they, they fined them was kind of like, who the hell are you? <laughs> but they, I suppose these are international laws that they agreed to, you know, you know, no trading with Iran and Cuba and... Uh, Russia even. Um, so BNP Paribas, the bank, had gone ahead and processed these uh, financial transactions with these countries that they had agreed they wouldn't with the U.S. and the U.S. decided they were going to find them $9 billion, a French bank. And uh, Putin commented that he was blackmailed. Yeah, well, Putin said that, but what came out of it was that uh, that the U.S. said, listen, you know that $9 billion fine against your French bank? We're willing to kind of make it disappear or overlook it if you will renege or cancel your deal to give Russia those two ships, to sell those two ships to Russia. And the French went, eh, nah, don't really like the sound of that deal. And they've gone ahead and they're selling the ships to Russia because just uh, last week, 400 Russian uh, sailors arrived yeah. in uh, San Lazar, the shipyard, to be trained on the two new ships. So that's why I say, I mean, you can just imagine other things going on. That's the, that's the strategy that the U.S. is being, that they're having to stoop to that level, not that they would ever... Not that they've ever not stooped to those levels before. That's probably standard policy, but it's the, in the context of what it's, you know, who they're doing it against. They're trying to stop economic and military agreements between France and Russia. And just imagine all the other things in the background that they're trying to do to stop that happening. And why are they trying to stop that happening? Because they're afraid of it. So the wind is blowing against, <clears throat> blowing against the U.S. 
in many different sure. ways, and it doesn't look like it can uh, rely on its partners any longer because it has screwed over its partners for the past, you know, 100 years, basically. It, it has never been a reliable partner, and it's coming home to roost. And it brings another question, this Mistral case, Mistral being the name of those uh, Navy ships uh, manufactured by France. The deal is $1.2 billion. Russia would pay $1.2 billion to France for those two ships. The fine, as you say, is $9 billion to be in Paris. And now that other, surprise, surprise, other French banks being investigated for similar crimes. So it will escalate well, to 20, 30, 40 billion. So the well, simple mathematical equation is why, how come France <clears throat> doesn't prefer to cancel the fines gain 30 million and cancel the, the transaction with Russia. Is there some geopolitics deeper motives behind that? Mm, it's simpler than that. Because when the ships are sold, you get hard cash. Those fines are drawn out in law courts until the end of time. No one actually has to pay anything. Exactly. There's no, there's no hard and fast mechanism by which <coughs> being paid paribas would immediately... Their use is for this purpose. Oh! Something came up here. I tell you, we'll drop that case against you if there's also long, you know, there's also uh, you're establishing uh, a relationship, an economic, uh, a business relationship with Russia on in the selling of those two ships that cost 1.2 billion. But then there's more. Uh, then there's maintenance. There's extra parts. I mean, it's looking long term for the French. Um, kind of uh, economy for it for the French for the French. Uh, it's worth defense. more than the sum of its parts. Yeah, the defense. It's it, it actually defense capability. I mean, there's all of those and that kind of asset value that is not not monetary that are involved in it as well. And like Neil said, I mean, banks kind of you know have ways and means of kind of like I mean, nine billion dollars for a bank. You know, nah, it's whatever. Kind, of, kind of funny, funny money in a certain sense. Uh, you know, it can be paid off in various. The French central bank just needs to go. Okay, well, we'll make it up good on your books. Uh, exactly, or we'll. Well, actually, no. Pay it off. And, I find yeah. it interesting because the asymmetry in lobbying power. On one side, you had the banks that were being fined, and we know the power of banks, those big banks. And on the other side, uh, the the industry that benefits the most of this mutual deal is the DCN. It's a nationalized uh, shipyard. And I was wondering, Dan, so at the top of the French state, a politician makes a decision to favor a one billion deal for public industry and uh, in compensation accept a nine billion and uh, growing fine that will uh, be paid, that will have to be paid by a, a major bank. So the asymmetry in uh, lobbying power can, left me wondering. Well, if you look at the last two leaders of the IMF, they're usually French, and they were French. Lagarde and Strauss-Kahn. strauss and Lagarde, I think Lagarde is also, I mean, they've been fairly raked over the coals in the U.S. for not being Wall Street friendly enough. <clears throat> basically, I don't think it comes down to, you can't compare the two, you know, $9 billion of a, of a bank fine, whether or not it'll be paid or 1 billion, 1.2 billion in hard cash for establishing a long-term kind of uh, business, military business relationship with Russia. Uh, I mean, there's probably many other factors that played into it that ultimately weighed in favor of that, of that decision to go ahead with that deal with Russia. And again, it, it ties into what we were saying of the overall general uh, 
uh, slowly, step by step, shift yeah. away from the U.S. That's what I meant. Towards your home country, essentially, your home continent, which is your regional landmass. And it makes far more, and real politic is slowly creeping into the, the dynamic here. Uh, and people are, uh, as much as they might fight and struggle against it, you know, the, the Anglophiles or the US Ophiles, the Americanophiles in Europe, as much as they might struggle against the breaking of that kind of like cozy relationship, uh, ultimately these people aren't really idealistic. They're not ideologues in the sense that um, if they see the writing on the, on the wall, and the yeah, last they'll, time, they'll say they'll, they'll switch allegiances in a yeah. heartbeat type of thing. The know. last time, I mean, the term real politic originates from pre-World War One. In what context? In the context that we're seeing a kind of similar crossroads here. Uh, I'm commenting about this uh, shift, this ongoing uh, geopolitical shift. There is a... Um, the release of the GDP figure for the U.S. economy recently, first quarter 2014, negative 2.9%. When we know the discrepancy between official stats and uh, real stats, we can imagine that the U.S. economy is really collapsing. And uh, the shift you mentioned on an international scale seems to be happening on a national scale as well, where you have a, two major U.S. lobbies that are starting to complain about... Uh, policy connected against Russia, saying it arms the economic, industrial interest of those uh, U.S. players. So how, what's your analysis on the, on the U.S. level, how the, the struggle between real political supporters and ideologists, anti-Russian ideologists and imperialists will uh, um, interact? Uh, no contest. No contest. The reality creators who wish things into being, I mean, they're in charge and all but a national revolution will change that. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I would say that, um, yeah, well, I mean, your question was basically, you know, what business Trump ideology? Yeah, exactly. The yeah, end of the conflict. Yes. And, you know, you have these psychopaths in power in the U.S. who have, I mean, it's not just that they have these ideologies, that they're not inspired or driven by, we have to get Russia. It's, yeah. it's more about personal power and simply America. They're, they have this idea of America. American as, exceptionalism. American exceptionalism, kind of like always winning, uh, having a right to uh, impose its policy and winning, winning, winning any, any conflict. Um, and they simply, they feel that at a visceral level that that's a slight or a kind of like, a, they can't take it basically, you know. Um, so it's not, it's not so much ideology as opposed to just personal kind of egotism and greed and, you know, we rule the world and you will do what we say. You know, it's like someone who's always had their way yeah. and the problem with such a person ever being told no, you know, uh, even, they'll even, they'll ultimately take action to to um, to stop people telling them no and always help people do what they say, uh, they'll take action that will ultimately uh, uh, be self-defeating or will shoot themselves in the foot, essentially, uh, because they're, they've lost control of their senses, really. You know, it's still about greed and dominance, but it's it's twisted and distorted and it's, it's not taking stock of reality on the ground anymore. And it's trying to impose, uh, uh, you know, 
impose a, a certain policy that really there's too many people opposed to it for it to, uh, to actually be implemented, but they'll go ahead and try and do it anyway. And people in that position will ultimately end up exposing themselves for what they are, which is just greedy, mindless, ultimately insane in a normal human sense. Uh, what do you think about this other possibility? Do you think psychopathic leaders in the U.S. empire, seeing the collapse, the coming, or the ongoing collapse of the empire, might start to implement an attitude of, uh, if we go down, we bring the whole world down, a World War III scenario, this kind of world destruction scenario, not losing alone? It's been suggested they have such a scenario on the, on, on the table, as they like to say. It's possible that those people, there are certain people who would have that attitude, yes, but I don't think they'd be allowed allowed to uh, to do that because, you know, you can't have a, a nuclear war on this planet and expect there to be much left to, to fight over, you know. And there are higher-ups who, who their ultimate vested interest is in having a planet to, to play with and obviously people on the planet to play with. So if you decimate the planet and, you know, you wipe out 90%. It's, you know, you don't get so much fun anymore from playing playing the game, you know. So, um, yeah, there's many, there's different levels, you know, really, and they're not all playing the same game. Essentially, they're not all informed in the same way. Um, it's very, it can get very complex, you know. I can imagine how it would get very complex in terms of, you know, the different levels of control and power trying to, you know, kind of, um, ensure that, that that they remain on top, essentially, that their policy or their plan is implemented, you know, uh, and allowing the underlings to go so far, but only so far, yeah. and stopping them before they take any action that would undermine. If, if I follow you, maybe you can use a, some kind of analogy, a farming analogy. You can have a farmer that is a employ, employed by a shareholder, by the owner of the farm. So the farmer in charge has to manage the farm. If at one point he turns berserk and decides to kill all the cattle, the shareholder, the owner, might say, hey, hang on, my interest here is that uh, the farm goes on and the cattle has mm-hmm. to make business. Mm-hmm. That's my resource. So don't touch it or I neutralize you. Yeah, pretty much. Well, I just wanted to get back to to the... Uh, this little extra part, extra piece on the, on the pedophile scandal... Uh, political pedophiles in the UK. Um, there's a guy, an MP, Simon Danchuk, um, who's been talking about this a lot. I don't know if he's there to simply um, kind of run interference or uh, kind of, you know, I don't know what his role is, but he seems to be saying a lot of very true things. I mean, he has an article in the Daily Mail recently uh, where he says, the title of it is, Forget the Expenses Scandal. If MPs have harbored pedophiles, well, there's a, I mean, harbored pedophiles, if MPs are pedophiles themselves, yeah, the, damage, the damage to British democracy would be fatal. So he's presenting it in, in a kind of a, in, in really the, in a real light, and the reality of the situation is that um, if, as we mentioned previously, this Tebbit guy saying that the system has to be protected, uh, this is why they've done it, because they realize that if, it, if the truth about the level of abuse of children by pedophiles 
right up to the very top level. We're talking about all of the famous people throughout the past 20, 30, 40 years, and, and including up to today, have been abusing children in horrible ways. Uh, as this would undermine the entire system, the idea of democracy and leadership and authority in the UK. I mean, it would, mm-hmm. there would be something pretty bad would happen in the sense it would be the, the end or maybe the end and you may have some kind of a... I mean, if it gets so far, you'd have public outcry to the point yeah. where the entire government uh, would have to go, not only the government, but you would have an enduring um, lack of or loss of uh, confidence in leaders per se. Or, or worse, uh, maybe Nidhi can share your experience here. Because in Belgium, a very, the case was very similar with the Juchu case, where whole ring was involved with hundreds or maybe thousands of victims, including ritual murder, torture, newborn babies being killed, etc., etc., involving a lot of elite members. And uh, in Brussels, there was the two instances of the White Marsh where literally millions of people were, were in the streets, were on the verge of civil wars. Did you experience that? How did you... Uh, um, can you describe uh, this event? No, I, actually, I wasn't, I wasn't there at the time. But I do remember the atmosphere, and it was, yeah, something was in the air. I was too young to really grasp what was happening, but... Um, what was the atmosphere? Oh, that something was something was wrong. People were, people were kind of carrying it around in their faces, like something really not right here. The problem there was it happened at a time when there wasn't enough momentum. It, it was taken care of, and in stages they covered it up. Um, killed people off, changed the judge. Uh, For, forty, they killed forty witnesses in the digital case. Yeah, the, what's happening in the UK now is a bit different, though. It's happening at a time when so many other things are coming together. Um, I think the UK is finished. I think the Scots realise that they're going to get themselves out of it this year, probably vote themselves out, and then you'll be left with well, England and Wales, and the Westminster elite. I hope is <laughs> finished in some respect. They'll probably survive like cockroaches in some other form or another. But uh, I just want to mention a particular guy, Michael Gove. I'm, most Brits, ordinary Brits, hate this guy too. He's such a smarmy prat. He's the education minister in the UK. He's been saying quite a few times now in recent weeks about how oh, we must... It's clearly coming from the British government. We must defend liberal values. We must defend British liberal values. Now, in the context in which he's making these statements, he's, of course, using the backdrop of Islamic extremism. But sometimes he doesn't mention it, and, and you get the feeling that it, it, it's sensing something more than that. We know and they know that Islamist extremism is a complete ruse. Behind the scenes, the British government completely supports the whole project in Syria and Iraq. They send kids there from the UK. But it's held up as a kind of limited hangout against which liberal values must be protected. I think I'm listening to a lot of what Russian thinkers and geopolitical analysts are saying. And one of them, he seems to get straight to it when it comes to liberal ideology especially as it's allegedly, you know, believed in by the U.S. and the U.K., it, they really get to the core of a psychopathic nature. When you think about how free trade came about, about how the individual is elevated to the place in place of God, 
the individual is the unit around which everything else forms. It's, it's just really selfish and psychopathic. And I think it's brought about this unjust, repressive, chaotic world. And whatever changes take place in the West, this, these very liberal values that Michael Gove and the British elite are harping on about just now are the things that are... Well, I hope to God. I hope they're going to make way for something more humane, more spiritual based, more based on objective reality. Well, when he talks about liberal values, he's simply saying uh, it's a cult of the individual, like you're saying, and it's like, uh, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. You know, it's like we get to do whatever we want because it's in the interest of, quote unquote, freedom and democracy. You know, we're spreading our values, but what they're spreading is their own personal values, and their own personal values are extremely uh, selfish and. Uh, and, and psychopathic ultimately where they, they have no concern for others so it's like you know it's, it's, it's a perfect it's a cover kind of for a psychopath well it's a kind of Christian missionary thing you know where you're going to to, to bring uh, the, the word of God to the, to the savages you know so I mean it's predicated on the idea that other people around the world need what you want to give them you know what you can yeah. even get into a kind of like a rapist mindset and pedophile mindset and all that kind of stuff I mean it's all they're all very similar in, in, in terms of their attitude their fundamental attitude proper though fight invoke this uh, liberal uh, mindset and uh, yeah, have the same analysis when I, when I read this word liberal for me it's the hallmark of the polarization process when I read liberal I think libertarian atheist individualistic, materialist. And these are the hallmarks of the psychopathic mind. Yeah. Who kill God, there's no more good, there's no more bad, there's no more moral, there's no more ethics, there's no more other beings, no respect, no rule, is the psychopathic destruction and yeah. anarchy. And I think it partly survived this long because <clears throat> previously it was held up against a liberal creation, a.k.a. communism. And communism was this extreme manifestation of, you know, a collective, a, some kind of political reflection of how the human species naturally is, which is it functions as one kind of social organism. Communism went, and what you got instead, and of course, Gov, Gov holds this up instead as the rag, oh, we must defend these liberal values against Islamic extremism. It's just replaced, you know. But what they're really saying underneath it all is we must defend our right, or I, he's speaking as I am God, I am psychopath, I God, defend my right, my liberty to abuse the hell out of you because I can and get away with it. Now we are talking about um, external parameters that might mitigate or modify the the situation in Ukraine and uh, ultimately help uh, Putin plan. Um, we mentioned the financial crisis. Um, there are also exchanges. So what do you think we come first? The de-dollarization, the collapse of the U.S. economy or the exchanges that we create so much chaos that a military uh, operation cannot be conducted because there's no more soldiers, no more organization, no more logistics? I hope it all comes at once. I think it's, it's all kind of happening, increasing together. That seems to be what's going on. I mean, the weather the last... We always say the weather's crazy. I mean, our listeners must be... I hope they're not getting bored of us saying it, but it does seem to get worse month on month. We keep a close eye on it and we try and compile... What is getting worse? What's going on? Well, I couldn't help notice last month the number of 
water spouts and or tornadoes touching down in places where they just don't. Sweden, Norway, the Netherlands, Istanbul, Greece, even Sochi, I mean, in the Black Sea, Russia. Um, and then there's the hailstorms. They're just insane. I mean, you get hail, yeah. You get hail sometimes in places they shouldn't, yeah. Of hail up to three feet deep in late June is just insane. In, in actually, looking at this before the show, I found somebody asked a question, Yahoo group, something, eight years ago. They just watched the day after tomorrow. You know, where the world goes into an abrupt ice age, yeah. superstorm, yada, yada. And they said, and, and they were, you know, chided for being naive, for asking the question. The question was, does that scenario, what happened, the hailstorm in Tokyo, could that ever possibly happen? And the best rated answer in reply to it was this, you know, guy saying, no, it's, it's impossible. I calculated the odds and it could physically never happen. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I found it so amusing to read that, you know, a few days after three feet of hail washed through Tokyo. They have to get diggers out to clear Did you comment? I did. I said, yeah, you're kind of wrong there, mate. And uh, I sent a link to, <clears throat> add a link to the... Well, the, yeah, the arrogance of these kind of uh, climatologists and climate scientists is just staggering, you know, and their head-in-the-sand approaches to stuff. Even, again, it kind of parallels a political thing where the reality is encroaching on their fantasy, you know, more and more, and they, instead of actually accepting that reality, they, they fly further into, into denial and, you know, fantasy land. Um, I mean, it's a notable example is uh, is a recent different stuff in the media about and the news about um the yeah, ice sheet build up uh, in antarctica and, and the arctic all around you know it's um uh you know they have these computer models that predicted uh you know warming and all this kind of stuff years ago and, and they're wondering why isn't it staying warm why isn't the warming continuing uh, why aren't the uh, the antarctic and arctic ice sheets kind of melting more and they're trying engaging in all sorts of mental gymnastics to try and um, explain it uh, while they kind of get, you know, while they get frozen, basically, you know, they can't, they're, uh, the, they call it a new scandal, in fact, uh, over the integrity of temperature data uh, in America. Uh, well, first of all, the UN computer predictions uh, been subjected to ridicule uh, that they have not been accurate for uh, for over 18 years. Uh, across the globe, there's about 1 million square kilometers more ice than there was 35 years ago. Uh, and, and, and in terms of the, uh, just to show the, the kind of, the lengths that they've gone to, to uh, it's not just, it, when I say denial, I mean denial literally because um, much of the uh, the temperature data that they've been using <clears throat> uh, to predict this, to claim that the planet is still warming, uh, is not based on any real thermometer readings uh, because many of the temperature stations were closed down and instead of stopping uh, recording the data from these posts, they, these climate scientists have taken the step of estimating the temperatures based on rec records of surrounding stations. So, I mean... Yeah. And there's something more to that. 
Um, a few years ago, the number of weather stations taken into account for the calculation of average water temperature was reduced, and they closed a lot of weather stations. Interestingly, oh, surprise, surprise, most of the remote stations were rural stations. Mm -hmm. And as everybody, most of us know, in cities, there is a city warming effect due to human activity. And uh, so, consequently... Are you saying the, the heat's man-made? Uh, no, I'm saying locally, Little, locally, locally yeah. but I knew you were going there. Locally, cities do have a, a warming effect, local, but it's not enough uh, for warming the planet, as the ice coverage records show. Yeah. And that, what is interesting is how do you reconcile one million extra, extra square kilometer of ice, while two major statements um, propagated by the global warmest was this poor polar bear hanging to the very last, last ice cube, remember, Flo floating okay. in the middle of the warm ocean. And the other scandal was a statement by this uh, in Indian scientist stating that in 20 years or 50 years, there will be no more glaciers on the planet. Yeah, well, eight years ago, they said snow would be a thing of the past in the UK. And what, uh, did, they, what did they experience in 10 10 meters of snow, or not that much, but... Cumulated, probably. Yeah. A serious amount of snow loss, you winters. Well, you know, they tend to focus on one area rather than the entire global kind of ice coverage, you know. Uh, in Antarctica, um, this is even... Even America's National Snow and Ice Data Center, which is funded by NASA, has had to admit that um, around the southern continent, around Antarctica, um, the ice covers about 16 million square kilometers which is more than 2.1 million more than is usual for this time of year. Uh, and it's by far the highest level since satellite observations uh, began in 1979. So, I mean, you know, but there's still some scientists suggesting that uh, this ice coverage, increased ice coverage in Antarctica is, uh, is caused by global warming. But uh, that's, I mean, th there is no sensible explanation for how that could actually happen, even though they try to come up with different uh, convoluted theories. Um, and, you know, there's various, you know, authorities on it who have, are admitting that one of them is um, the head of the climate science in Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta uh, has said that um, the arguments aren't convincing and has, to have, has had to admit that we do not have a quantitative, predictive understanding of the rise in Antarctic sea ice extent. So they're basically, at the very least, admitting that we don't really know why the icy thing is happening when it shouldn't be, uh, when we should all be like drowning in warm water. It's actually, we're seeing an increased ice coverage. So, and they don't know. Of course, that's a bit disingenuous because there is an explanation, and that's the whole point. The whole counter-argument provides uh, the explanation for why that is happening. But they, they're not willing to go there. All they're willing to say is, yeah, it's a bit puzzling, we're not sure, but, you know, global warming and Muslim terrorists. It's all almost schizophrenic that the very, da the very data, official data provided by the IPCC show a global cooling since... since uh, 1998, 16 years of global cooling. Global cooling, ice coverage increase. I mean, the relation seems pretty straightforward. So it 
might be disingenuous in we don't know. They're very on data show coding is going on and we know, and we have um reliable hypothesis to explain why global cooling is, is going on and that branch with uh, the previously mentioned eight storms. Yeah. Eight storms are typical phenomena due to A, an increase in atmospheric dust that act as condensation nuclei around which uh, water or ice crystals form and B, to a cooling down of higher strata of the atmosphere and uh, consequently the ice. And those two factors, more cometary dust and cooling down of the atmosphere, can be due to a single cause. Yeah, where's Al Gore? He's gone quiet. He's taking care of the polar bear, maybe. He's gone all quiet. We might have a call on the line here. Let me just check. Hi, do we have a call on the line? Uh, no, I think we so. have a listener. Is it me? Yeah, it's you. Is it me? Oh, yep. I'm John. How you doing? Hey, John. How you doing? Welcome to the show. Um, <laughs> I'm uh, from South America. I would say uh, some, uh, somewhere in South America. <laughs> All um, right. But the, the, the question that I have for you guys is um, how much of all this do you do you you think is uh, something or someone uh, that's not of this world, unworldly, unearthly, that has a hand, especially the political issues, you know, with the wars and um, all of that. the climate, the climate um, is very obvious down here that is that is is is, is manipulated, um, and it's very obvious the political. It's, it's manipulated by who? Well, who I don't know. I don't know if it's a who or if it's a what, but I know it's not human, whatever it is. Uh, uh, And what I wanted to know, uh, I I remember reading uh, something about your publisher, uh, the, the Laura Knight woman, where she wrote something about the Cassiopeians uh, uh, or something. Um, uh, that's not what I really want to point to. Basically, I want to know whether or not you guys have any idea or have, have you, you know, put that into your, your, your list of reasons uh, why everything is screwed up, you know, the political, the, you know, the climate, uh, uh, you know, the world, basically. And okay. I, I, I just wanted to know whether or not you've got, you guys have, you know, considered that. Um, because 
Okay. Okay, John. Uh, okay, and uh, we understand your question, and thank you for asking this uh, important question. From our research, it seems that uh, there are some universal law. So here we're not talking about uh, any kind of being, human or not being. There are some universal laws. One of the most fundamental universal law seems to be uh, this uh, drive towards more creation, more intelligence, more creativity. And uh, that has been a law applying for millions and millions of years on the planet <clears throat> and maybe uh, in other places. And when evolution goes wrong, right now we can say on planet Earth evolution goes wrong. Psychopathic elites have destroyed the planet, the minds, the bodies, and we are regressing. And when regression occurs, the opposite of evolution, the universal laws intervene and bring back the population, the species, towards the right track of creativity and evolution. So in this sense, the cosmically induced events we're witnessing right now, these earth changes, this crazy weather, might be simply a manifestation of this universal law bringing back life on the path, on the true path of evolution. But in, in terms of the wars and stuff, John, uh, yeah, I mean, our theory is that um, that's a direct result of a kind of non-human, ultimately a non-human kind of predator that we call, that are called psychopaths that, that are in positions of power and they do what they do. They have a destructive kind of principle towards all life. And that results in wars and death and suffering all over the planet. Uh, and where those people come from, yeah, it's possible that they were genetically engineered and dropped down here on the planet sometime, you know, 100,000 years ago or something like that. And that posits the idea there is a possibility that there are alien species or alien beings that have been, you know, visiting this planet or may have had some part in the evolution of the human race and, and that they may have actually... Uh, there could be a genetically engineered kind of uh, variety of humans that, that we call psychopaths. It's a possible uh, explanation for it. Obviously, we don't have much evidence for it or any evidence for it. But um, but again, there's the whole UFO phenomenon that has, has endured throughout history. And that's a big question uh, as far as whether there's something along those lines interfering on the planet. Well, you know... I mean, that's for each person to decide. I mean, the evidence is there that there, are, there is some kind of a UFO phenomenon that is taken seriously by, uh, by authorities on this planet. I mean, you look at the Richard, um, Dolan? Richard Dolan's uh, book, UFOs in the National Security State. There's a lot of hard evidence there that uh, the authorities, governments in the U.S. and around the world took that uh, phenomenon very seriously and thought there was something very real to it. So, I mean, that opens up the whole... A whole debate on it, uh, but as far as direct implicate or direct interference and stuff, it tends. It seems it was set in motion a long time ago. The course of human evolution and the, the humans on the planet. It seems that that was set in motion primarily by the imposition or the, the existence of psychopaths in power who tend to screw up royally, screw up human evolution and human society wherever they gain uh, positions of power. And um, if I may add something, what Joe said and what I said is on mutually exclusive. You might have experiment within experiment. On a universal level, you might have an experiment towards creativity, towards evolution that is going on with some uh, um, adjustment mechanism, catastrophes or changes to, to clean the, 
the situation, and you can have a lower level experiment conducted, I don't know, by aliens or whatever, where human beings are just engineered, basically. Uh, if that's the case, obviously the alien conducted experiment is not uh, complying with the universal law and uh, seems to lead to some uh, drastic uh, earth and cosmic reactions. So you have it, John. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I just come to the conclusion uh, that that what uh, is just not human, whatever, and mm-hmm. I see it. I, 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 I was in Ecuador for a while, and and the way. That the president of Ecuador is, you know, uh, destroying the Amazon River, you know, destroying the Amazon area, and on one hand, and on the other hand, he he he's really anti-U.S., but his his actions are 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 just like a psychopath and. And you know the contradictions are just so evident, especially with him. Uh, you know, Bolivia is another example. Um, it goes on and on and on down here. Uh, how you know the president is it, just is just some some. Influence. I, I, you know, I don't know what it is, but you see the contradictions in what they do, what they say, and it just goes on and on and on. And I just know that whatever it is, it's just not human. That basically, that's you know the current. And you know the question, you know, you guys answered. I can appreciate, you know, the universal laws, etc. You know, karma, etc. Uh, yeah, that has has an impact as well, a great impact as well. Uh, you know, the pendulum has to, you know, swing the other way. You know, so I, I just wanted to know whether or not you guys, had, you know, considered, you know, the fact that uh, uh, whether you call it a psychopath or whether it's whatever it is, it it really is is. Is, not you know behind yeah you know behind you know yeah uh, we're being messed with yeah. one way or the other John we're being messed with obviously the human race is being messed with either you know by the kind of standard elites or whatever or you, know, you can posit some kind of higher force that's unseen or whatever but the the the, the point for for everybody to understand is that you gotta be aware of of what's going wrong on the planet and in human relations and Choose a side, you know. Uh, see, see the way things are going wrong and the way people are acting, and choose not to act in that way, and do your bit to kind of try, try and restore some balance, you know. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. anyway, listen, we got to yeah. we got to let you go, okay. John. We're coming near All the right. end of the show. Thanks for your Thanks call. For your call, though, and have fun down there in Ecuador, South America. <laughs> okay. Bye bye. Take it easy. Bye.
Yeah, all the world's a stage, and we're all playing our parts. Joe, you mentioned something early in this week about the kind of resurgence of Russia and its actions or whatever its strategy might be, about it being like witnessing the closing scene of a play. Yeah, well, people tend to take the attitude of, I know a lot of people, and this isn't just on our website, south.net, or on our forum, um, it's, I see it in kind of the liberal, if we can use that term, uh, media and stuff, like on websites, like The Guardian and stuff, people commenting about the whole Russian situation and about Putin, and there's a lot of people who tend to <clears throat> want to see Putin as a kind of a savior, he's coming in on his horse to kind of like beat up the bad guy, the U.S. and stuff. People who are of that mindset uh, kind of look to Putin as a savior type of thing. And um, I don't see any any chance of that happening, of the world being put to rights or saved and changed in any fundamental way uh, from the trajectory that it's on by Putin or anybody else. Uh, as Neil was just saying, the kind of analogy I, I thought of was like it's a... It's a play uh, on the theater, uh, and the actors are on stage, and it's going in a certain direction, and it has a an end point, um, and but that doesn't preclude the possibility that there's a kind of towards the end, after a lot of stuff has been exposed through the play about all the different, you know, all of the options, the arguments have been given by the different actors and stuff. Uh, at the end, a narrator comes out and maybe, you know, provides a a contrary view to the general line of force of, of the play type of thing or what the message of the play was. Someone comes along and says, well, you've listened to all of the arguments, you've listened to the yeah. what seems to be the main point of this play, but... And he kind of holds up a mirror. Yes. Maybe this isn't the way it is, you know. Maybe there's another option, you know. Kind of just before the final curtain type thing as, as, a, as a, um, a kind of a, a gift or a, a gesture to the people who have been paying attention uh, or as a as support to the people who, you know, have been paying attention or think in a different way or don't agree with the thesis of the, of the, of the, the, of the play. Um, but that doesn't by any means mean that, you know, suddenly it's all going to change type of thing, you know. Um, as we've said on so many other occasions, you know, the, the world is the way it is. It serves a particular purpose. It's generally speaking for learning, for people to learn lessons about life. And it seems that one of the best ways that people learn, and the fastest way maybe that people learn lessons is through some kind of level of suffering, uh, either their own personal suffering or, or you know, trying to understand and empathize maybe with the suffering of other people. And there's God knows there's more than enough of that and has been throughout human history. Um, and it seems that that is the point of it, and people shouldn't get too hung up on trying to change it because it serves that purpose. Um, and to change it would <clears throat> deny the opportunity for learning uh, lessons in that way, learning life lessons in that way. Um, so that's what I think. Okay. I well, think that's a very good conclusion of words. All right. Well, we're going to end it there, folks, because it's ten past almost 10 past the hour. Uh, thanks to our callers and to our listeners and to our chatters. We will be back next week with another show as yet to be determined, determined or announced. 
but we hope you'll we hope you'll uh, join us for that one. Uh, until then, have a good one. Uh, good night. Bye bye. Have a good one. Bye bye.